You're listening to the Western Science Speaks podcast. Explaining why these selfless acts are actually advantageous is important. Evolution is a slow and unguided process. Well, I'm Canadian and this is the school I go to and this is how much I love my culture. Let me share this with you. Presented by Henry Standage. Hey, welcome to the Western Science Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Henry Standage, and today our guest is Dr. Bob Lennon from the Department of Earth Sciences here at Western. Bob is an economic geologist by trade. He helps find new locations for mining using a mix of intuition and precise analytical methods. He joins us today to talk about the state of mining in Canada, what materials countries and companies are competing for now, and the lessons COVID has taught us about how we treat our own natural resources. Here we go. All right, let's start here, Bob. Why don't you tell us in your own words why prospecting is so integral to the modern economy? Sure. If you um, look at any commodity, and it doesn't matter what the commodity is, it could be rice, it could be apples, it could be gold, it could be copper. And if you look at, if you look at that commodity over time, virtually every one of those graphs is exponential. And, and the reason is twofold. One is because there's been an exponential increase in the population of the planet. But on top of that, uh, as populations, the population curve slows, we're getting more and more middle-class people and middle-class middle, middle people have stuff. So if you're middle-class, you've got a big screen TV and you've got a car and you've got all of these things so there's an ever-increasing demand for commodities. So for instance, if you look at something like copper, in the next 20 years, people will consume more copper than is produced since the history of humans. Wow. So it's not just a, 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 a case of recycling. Of course, we believe in recycling, and of course, we recycle. We'll never recycle 100%. And even if you did recycle 100%, you don't have enough of that commodity to meet the demands of humans on the planet. So we need to find more and more resources. And the problem is that up until I'd say maybe 10, 20 years ago, exploration success was, uh, was it was very successful and it was quote, relatively easy to find an ore deposit, or even that arguable, no, it's not that easy, but uh, now all of the easy stuff is, has been found. You can't, you can't walk around and find things. So now instead of looking for things that are on the ground, we're looking for things that are 100 meters below the earth. And that's much, much more difficult. Modern exploration is, 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 uh, is much less, less successful than what previous exploration has been. And we're relying increasingly more on scientific advancements to come up with new techniques to find the uh, to find the commodities. I'm curious to know when this transition from the surface to slowly getting lower and lower into the ground began to happen. It's been it's been ongoing for like 20 years. It's it's been it's been going on progressively for a long long time. And and there are certain areas of the of the of the of the earth that haven't had extensive exploration, but even those areas they've had 
exploration to a certain extent. An example would be Northern Canada. The, the population density in Northern Canada is extremely, extremely sparse. So there, there are areas in Northern Canada which haven't seen extensive people walking over it. But even there, pretty much every kilometer of, of, of area in Northern Canada, somebody's walked over it. Can you take us through the process of how a mineral deposit forms? And just talk a little bit about your work specifically with magmatic hydrothermal systems. Magmatic hydrothermal kind of ties it together. So magma, like volcanoes. So some metals crystallize, precipitate directly out of, out of magma. For example, copper. Uh, diamonds have a magmatic origin as well. And then hydrothermal, if you break down what the word means, hydro is water, thermal is hot, so it's, it's forming out of hot water. Uh, that, that hot water may have become heated because of magma or it may be in, in the absence of magma. And the temperatures of those fluids range from below 100 degrees all the way up to 800 degrees C. So I'm more interested in the high temperature stuff. People kind of have their own specialization, what they're interested in. So magmatic hydrothermal means that there's a magma and that's at minimum a source of heat and a source of heat will drive convection. So that will drive fluids to convect. And then metals can also be partitioned from the magma into those fluids and then eventually form an ore deposit. So what I'm interested in is primarily the chemical reasons why metals are transported in, in fluids and, and how they are deposited out of those fluids to form an ore deposit. In the case of Canada, I think the average person wouldn't necessarily associate our country with having lava type substances. To what degree does Canada apply to a magmatic hydrothermal system? You're thinking about the present, which geologists don't. Uh, Canada is roughly 4 billion years old. So there are areas like here in Ontario, the, the, the shield is about on average around three to, 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 to two and a half billion years old. And what was the environment two, two and a half billion years ago underneath us right now? There was lots of magma. And that goes all the way, goes all the way up to the present. And there are active volcanoes in, in Canada. When I think of Canada, I think about how we've got the second largest country in terms of land, and we only have 35 million people, which makes me think we would be kind of a hot spot for mining. We are. We're, okay. we're, one of the, we're one of the leading nations. I mean, you take any, any sector of the, of the economy, you can say, okay, let's look at uh, biotech, right? So are we better than the Japanese? Are we better than the uh, Germans? Are we better than the Americans? You know, that's, that's tough to be better than those guys. When it comes, when it comes to geology and mining, it's like, yeah, we're, we're one of the best countries in the world. Resource-wise, are we one of the most affluent? But we're in the top 10 of, of a lot of different metals, including, um, including gold. We're certainly a major gold producer. Why don't you describe for us what a mineral deposit looks like before you and your team start digging and after when it's being optimized? So the way we look at mineral deposits is it's a cycle. It starts off with exploration, and that's, that's the portion of the industry that I'm involved in, is, is, is mineral exploration. Even before you start exploration, there can be uh, negotiations with First Nations or whichever communities live there. Uh, then you start exploring. If, if you find something, uh, very early on, there are not only 
finding the resources, but there are environmental studies and permitting uh, regulation studies that are, that, are, that are going on. Even again, before you put the mine into production, you have to have a closure plan. The government takes escrow to make sure that if the company goes bankrupt, that there's still money there to, to do the environmental cleanup. Now that, it didn't used to be that way 20 years ago, and there are all kinds of environmental messes left from 20 years ago, but the same is true with, with virtually any industry. So the, the whole thing works in a cycle. I'm involved in the exploration stage where we're finding new metals, locations of new metals, and defining what's controlling them, how are they distributed, how can I find more of those, but then other people come in after that, develop the mine, and then other people come in after that and close down the mine and do, do reclamation and, and monitoring. So the whole thing is a, is a, is a big circle. I, I'm surprised that going into a mine isn't, isn't more of a tourist attraction for us in Canada. Even as a geologist, it can be difficult to get into. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of security issues that, that you have to have training and, and to go underground. And it, there are some tourist mines, for instance, in, in Sudbury, you can, you can go to a tourist mine where you go in and you sort of get a feel for what it what it looks like. And, and uh, there are a couple of, of other places as, as well across Canada where they have these tourist mines. My big idea I was going to pitch to you is the idea of a reverse skyscraper, a mine scraper, where you build like <laughs> office spaces under the ground. That, not so much office spaces because they're, they're really expensive to run. You got to pump water out of them. You've got ventilation. It's a big deal plus just all the safety aspects. But there are some labs. Uh, for instance, if you're, uh, if you're a physicist, you'll probably have heard of the neutrino lab. In, again, it's in Sudbury. Um, they, were, they were looking for uh, a lab, uh, you know, several kilometers underground where they could uh, measure neutrinos. And they, they picked a, a, uh, an abandoned mine in Sudbury to set up that lab. And there have been other uh, there have been other mines that have been used in the past as, uh, as doing environmental testing for radioactive waste disposal. And, and uh, so there are some cases where mines are used for research, but not, not as, a, as, as an office reverse skyscraper. It would be just too, too expensive and, and the, uh, the cost would be prohibited. I appreciate your polite reception of my mine scraper idea. <laughs> okay, let's transition to gold. How would I know I was close to a gold mine in your line of work? So I, I, do, I do research on that. Um, I just finished actually a, a, a major program uh, called Footprints, where we were trying to discover literally what, what the footprint of, of an ore deposit is. So how do you know when you're, when you're in a mine, but then when you go 10 meters, 100 meters, a kilometer away, what is it that you see? So we can see differences in what's called whole rock chemistry. So we take a rock, we crush it up, and we analyze it for half the periodic table. And, and we can also look at the mineral chemistry. We can also look at um, structural differences, folds and faults and structural features in, in the rock. And we do a combination of, of all of those. Um, so the, this, is, this is kind of the holy grail, the challenge right now. How do you know you're on the edge of something? Because we're standing on the ground, and how do we know that there's not something a kilometer beneath us? So we use geochemistry, so the chemistry of the rock, chemistry of minerals, and we also use geophysics, which is looking at physical properties like magmatism, density, 
conductivity, these physical properties to see whether there are uh, potential an ore deposit at depth. And then the only way you can truly find an ore deposit is to drill it. So we'll go to an area based on anomalies. So for instance, if I took a rock sample and it had uh, 100 ppb gold in it, 100 ppb doesn't sound like very much parts per billion, uh, but I would be quite excited about that because in some places ore grade, what you can mine, ore is by definition what you can mine, uh, we're mining one ppm gold. That's not very much gold, a pp part per million. So if you're half of that, you're potentially close to it. So, so that's how we would know when we're close to something. There is an impression out there that people just go drilling, go, oh, we found gold, hooray. But what you're explaining is that it's a lot more precise. Well, we call it economic geology because the study of mineral deposits, because there is economics to it. So you say, hey, I'm going to drill, drill, you know, drive a drill hole. It's like, okay, well, that might cost minimum of $10,000 anywhere up to $100,000. So how many of these drill holes are you going to drill? And you have to realize at the exploration stage of the game, you're not producing anything. So you're raising money on the stock market. And then your ability to raise money on the stock market depends on how successful you are at finding stuff. So if you just punch holes into the ground, if you miss, the people that invested money on you are only going to let you miss so many times. A typical company may, may have only find a mine once every 10 years or once five to 10 years. Now, I was looking a little bit into the gold rush about halfway through the 19th century. And I was wondering, is there in our modern world, a material that you would find parallels to the gold rush back in 1850, where you have a bunch of companies clamoring over a new material in you know, the world of technology. Like, is there something Silicon Valley is looking to find when they go mining that is incredibly valuable? I guess I'm asking, what is the new gold? First off, yes, there's, there's, there's rushes all the time. So that you have to stake ground the same way that we did over 100 years ago. You had to have a, a mining claim. So if somebody finds gold in a new place, then immediately what will happen is that companies will go around and, and they'll stake all the ground around it to find more of it. So what's the, the, the new gold? There, there are a lot of niche metals. Um, that overall aren't, aren't worth as much. Still, the, we're still looking for the basics, things like copper, um, you know, electric cars. If we start buying electric cars, each one of those electric cars takes something like 10 or 20 kilos of, of copper to, to goes into that car and cobalt goes into that car and graphite goes into that car. And still a lot of our uh, Demand is based on things that we've always needed, but we continue to need copper, lead, zinc, uh, a variety of those commodities. Now, having said that, sort of the, the, the newer metals are things like rare earths. The rare earth metals uh, are used all over the place. Like right now, you're looking at me on a computer screen. Well, the rare earth metals are, the, uh, are used on that computer screen to make all the colors that you have. Um, if you look at something like uh, wind power, well, the turbine's being turned by uh, uh, niobium-rich uh, alloys to make the super strong steel for the blades. But then to, to, to convert the, the turning turbine into electricity, they use neodymium magnet to do that conversion. Neodymium is, is, is a rare earth element. 
rare earths, if you start looking and doing a little bit of research, you'll, you'll realize that virtually all the world's rare earths are, are produced in China. And, and the non-Chinese countries have started saying, hmm, maybe this isn't a good idea that everything we have is coming from China. Maybe we need to find our own rare earths. And the Canadian government and the US government have actually launched a, fair, a fairly large program into securing Canadian uh, sources for things like the rare earth metals. Interesting. Uh, that's also a nice segue to my next question. What does the future of mining look like? I mean that in the sense of how does mining contribute to environmentally friendly materials such as the batteries and electric cars? Mining always reacts to society that when there's a demand for a specific metal, so if a new metal is being, or if a metal is being used in a different way and the, and the demand for that goes up, then we as geologists working with companies go out and find it to, to meet the demand that, that uh, the overall population is, is asking for. The future of mining, it's changed a lot in the, in the last 20 years for the better. There's still a lot of work to do. If you don't mind me asking, when did you fall in love with mining? Not mining per se, uh, you know, it's more geology. Exploration. Uh, one of the beautiful things about geology is I have been to places, sorry, but you just will never get there. Um, <laughs> I believe it. I've been on top of mountains in, in, in British Columbia at, uh, at, at 14,000 feet. I've been dropped off there by a helicopter. And you look around, you've got to go, it's like, man, how many people have ever been here? Uh, I, I have the privilege of, of working in places that, that tourists just don't go to. I did my PhD in Thailand, which you go, okay, you know, lots of people go to Thailand. It's like, well, no, I, I worked on the Thai-Burmese border where there, I've been in villages where, forget about people speaking English, they didn't even speak Thai, they spoke local languages. And that was, that was just a riot. I love it. I absolutely love it. I've, I've worked in the Kalahari Desert in the middle of nowhere. And, and uh, that's, that's what I love is, is, is being outside. And, and uh, I look at my, you know, I'm looking at my rocks, I'm doing my mapping. I love, I love geology, but it's also being outside and, and uh, being able to work in, in some places that that's, I'm there because I'm a geologist. Otherwise there, there are no tourists there. It's too remote. What's your favorite part of there not being tourists? Oh, you, you, inter you interact with local people. Uh, my, my fondest memories are, are, are interacting with, with, with local people because uh, uh, if there are no tourists there, then, I mean, you're a visitor, you're not a tourist because you're there working, but they're not used to, to seeing that many people. But going back to my PhD, I, I learned how to speak Thai and I would, I would come up to people and just start speaking Thai to them and they would just be blown away that they couldn't believe that I was actually speaking their language. Definitely something to be said for the reception you get when you actually immerse yourself in a culture versus hang out with people from your culture in just a different location. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Speaking of being outside and traveling, I think I'm going to call this segment COVID Corner. <laughs> so a vital lesson from this pandemic appears to be the notion that it is imperative for a nation to be prepared to rely on itself. As we've been over in this podcast, Canada doesn't lack natural resources, but are we as resourceful as we could be with regard to mining and developing supply chains out of gold, lithium, etc., with our own materials? I think um, it, it really depends on, on each individual commodity. Um, there's also the manufacturing 
side of it. Uh, and this now we're getting getting into politics as opposed to earth earth sciences. So if we use lithium as an example, we've we've got lithium. Right now that the mining is just ramping up, but right now in, in Canada, if, if you want to open up a lithium mine, virtually all the lithium exploration is being backed by Chinese companies. So as Canadians, we'll, we'll mine the lithium, we'll, we'll produce uh, the lithium product using lithium carbonate or lithium hydroxide, and then we ship it over to uh, China, and then China makes the lithium batteries and makes the cars and puts those lithium batteries in the cars, and all the electric car manufacturing is going on in China. And this is a long-going debate in Canada. Not so much are we using our, our natural resources but why are we always sending our natural resources overseas to get developed into something that we buy back? We know with, with, with COVID that uh, we'll take trees, chop them down, uh, and out of the pulp, uh, that pulp goes to be making uh, N95 masks. But up until now, we've been shipping the, that pulp to, to other countries like the United States to make the mask and, and, and buy, the, buy the masks back. So it's like, well, maybe we should be making our own masks. So it's the same thing. It's interesting how a pandemic like this does expose the flaws of a country because the way you put it just then, it's like, yeah, that's, that sounds totally ridiculous that we're getting the resources for something and shipping it somewhere else to be developed and buying it back. Because it's cheaper. Yeah. It's, it's so so it's, it's, a, it's a question of you as a Canadian, if we made that same electric car that's being made in China, are you willing to pay 20 or 30% more? Personally, yes, but I, I understand the dilemma there. And that's and that's and that's 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 the dilemma, and that's that's up to the, the the people of Canada. I know personally, when I go shopping, when you they have your little stickers on your vegetables and fruit, you know, I will buy an Ontario apple as opposed to an apple coming from a from another country, and I'll pay more for the Ontario apple than the apple that's coming from another country when I buy. Now with with COVID, I buy I, I deliberately buy from local producers my my vegetables wherever wherever possible because I that's something I believe in and and, and you're right it's you know if we want to if we want to make our own electric cars then as Canadians if we're willing to pay a little bit more for them we should make them here right now we're chatting via computer screens and they're probably made in China right we don't make computer screens in Canada. So we're, we're a little bit uh, behind in the tech sector in some ways. Well, that's, that's one way of looking at it. I mean, the, if, if, if you're Chinese, uh, you, you realize that what they make now is not what they're going to be making 10 years from now because they'll be forced with the same situation where there'll be a, a country where the people are less wealthy and it'll be cheaper to make the computer screens in that country. So to me, where, where we are in, in the Western world in, in general is, you know, at, we're at universities and that's one place where it starts. We have to be smart. We have to come up with the next new thing. And then as long as we're coming up with ideas, then things like manufacturing uh, get done in other places, whereas the new ideas, and this is why there's, there's a lot of concern about intellectual property. Because intellectual property is kind of the, the, uh, the, the domain of, of the rich countries because that's, that's what our bread and butter is. That's where we're making our money. As a geologist, um, I'm trying to come up with new ideas. I'm not personally trying to make money off of my intellectual property, but it is the Canadian companies that are using that technology to be better at exploring than 
companies from uh, from maybe from other countries are. Right. If China starts building mine scrapers, I'm going to be really ticked off. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I've got one more question that I'm really interested to get your take on. Hypothetically, if Canada calls China up one day and offers to just switch lands and we can just teleport both populations into their new country. So Canada moves to where China is currently and all the Chinese people move to where Canada is. Does China take up the offer and go, wow, we can do so much with this country? Or do they decline and keep the land they already have? They could do a ton with this land, but they already are. So, so Chinese, Chinese companies already own uh, many oil, Canadian oil companies. They already own many Canadian gold mines. They own Canadian copper mines, et cetera. And what, what China is doing, which isn't, isn't well recognized uh, by the general public, is that China owns a lot of natural resources. China, China is the biggest investor in mining in, in Africa as a continent, everywhere in Africa. China is a big player in mining in South America. So the mining is going on in South America, but the Chinese are, are quite deliberately making sure that they're securing natural resources for the future of China. They're very, they're very smart about it. So, so China's already doing that and China's already buying Canadian resources as well. And that's something that, I mean, the Canadian government monitors it and there are regulations as to how much of our natural resources external countries can own, already own a fair chunk of our natural resources. And there are, there are other countries, like for instance, Valet is, is the major company in, uh, uh, in Sudbury. That's, that's, owned, uh, that's a Brazilian company and, and uh, there are Swiss companies and German companies. And so every, everything is multi, multinational. And, and I think there are sort of two visions of, of, the, of, of the world. One is the, because of COVID, we're, we're thinking more, very much internally and should we, shouldn't we have supplies of everything? And that's being very isolationist. Um, the, the other way of looking at it is, no, we're in a global market and everything is international. And, and it's almost as if countries don't exist anymore. We're, we're selling goods on an international market. If, if Chinese company owns some of our natural resources, it's like they have a key to our house. Does it work vice versa? Do we have Canadian <laughs> companies in China? Yeah, it's very difficult to work in China. So no, it doesn't. It's, it's, it's much more difficult to, to operate in China. And it's not only China. There, there are many countries in the world where uh, if you're a foreign company and you want to operate in that company, there has to be 50% uh, local ownership in that company in order for it to be allowed to operate. So it's not, it's not just China. There, there are a lot of countries that work that way, but there are a lot of countries like Canada where no, you don't have to have a minimum Canadian ownership to operate. If we had those regulations where 50% of all foreign companies had to be Canadian owned, we wouldn't have the country companies here. They would just stay at home and say, well, no, I don't need to go to Canada. All right. Well, thanks a lot for coming on, Bob. This was super interesting. Uh, we'll end the interview there. But once again, thank you for coming on. You're welcome. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That wraps up another episode of Western Science Speaks. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts to make sure you stay up to date with the latest episodes and research from our community. To find us on your preferred podcast platform, search up Western U Science. For now, I'm Henry Standage signing out. 
Thanks for listening.